And speaking of God's Word, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19, and in just a moment we're going to be reading um, some verses from this particular text. Um, Today we're going to be talking about 7,000 standing tall. Now earlier today someone asked me when they saw the uh, newsletter and saw what the title of the lesson was, was they want to know if these 7,000 were good people or bad people. Well, we're going to discover uh, who those people are in just a moment. But before we talk about these 7,000 standing tall, I want to talk to you a little bit about Elijah. Because we are going to be talking about this particular incident that happened in his life. Now keep in mind that Elijah was a prophet of God. A very famous prophet of God. A very powerful prophet of God. He came before King Ahab and told King Ahab that because of the sins of Israel and because of the sins of King Ahab and Jezebel, that it was not going to rain for a period of time. And because God was on Elijah's side and God uh, gave him this power, it did not rain in Israel for three and a half years until Elijah prayed and then finally it rained. This is the same Elijah that stood before the prophets of Baal and had this grand contest on Mount Carmel and how they built up two altars and they both prayed to God, one prayed to God Elijah and one prayed to their God Baal. And we know how the contest ended with fire coming down from heaven and consuming the altar of Elijah. But yet during this contest Elijah asked one of the greatest questions that could be asked. He says, how long halt ye between two opinions? If God be God, serve him. But if Baal be God, then serve him. And of course, the point of the exercise was that God is the only real God because the prophets of Baal could do nothing. It was this same Elijah that was fed miraculously three different times in his life. One time when he was hungry, he was fed by ravens. Another time when he was hungry, he was fed by angels. Another time when he was hungry, uh, he ran into this widow. And this widow, because of Elijah's miraculous power, never ran out of flour and never ran out of oil. So even when the nation was facing a drought and a food shortage, Elijah and this widow and her son could be taken care of because of this miraculous thing. So close was Elijah's relationship with God that Elijah did not come to die in the typical way that we think of someone dying. Instead, when it came time for Elijah to leave this earth, there was a fiery chariot that came down from heaven in a whirlwind and picked up Elijah and rode him into heaven. Thus, he did not taste death in the traditional way. Elijah was considered the greatest prophet of all time. We know this to be the case because when we go to the Mount of Transfiguration, and there we have Jesus being transfigured in front of His disciples, and on one side of Him was Moses, the greatest lawgiver of all time, and on the other side of Him was Elijah, signifying that He was the greatest prophet of all time. And of course, the point of the transfiguration was to prove to the disciples that Jesus is superior to both of them. But my point is that Elijah 
was the greatest prophet as far as God was concerned, as far as the people of Israel was concerned. He was powerful. He was close to God. He was someone that understood and appreciated the power of God's miracles. But with that in mind, I want us now to start looking at 1 Kings chapter 19. I'm going to read a rather lengthy passage here. But I think it's necessary to help us understand the points that we are making this morning. I hope you will follow along. Oftentimes when you read more than just a few verses, people's minds tend to wander. But we hope that you'll hang in there and keep looking at the text with me. And we see the story of what's going on. But beginning in chapter 19 of 1 Kings... It says, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. In other words, Jezebel swore on her own life that she was going to kill Elijah by the next day. And it says, When he saw that, he arose and went for his life, or to save his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Now, first of all, I want you to think about something. Here was a powerful prophet of God, and he just finished this contest with the prophets of Baal, and he had won the battle, and now Jezebel's going to try to kill him, so he flees. And he basically tells God as he's in the wilderness of Sinai, he says, just take my life. There's no point in me living any longer. Verse 5 says, As he laid and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid himself down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went into the strength of that meat. Forty days and forty nights unto Herod, the mount of God. And he came thither to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? Basically, the word of the Lord came to him and says, Why are you hiding in this cave, O great prophet of God? And here's how Elijah answered. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenants, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I'm hiding in this cave, God, because of the fact I'm the last one. I'm the only one remaining. That's still faithful. The whole nation is lost, God. Nobody cares for you anymore. And now even your king and queen want to put me to death. I'm the sole survivor of the God-fearing people in the land. 
And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the opening of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, Why are you here, Elijah? Why are you in this cave? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel had thrown down thy altars, slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek to take my life away from me. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall thou appoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Saphat, of Abmeholiah, shall thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that after him that escapeth the sword of Hazel shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehiel shall Elijah slay. And then verse 18, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed into Baal, and every mouth which have not kissed him. James chapter 5 and verse 17 reminds us that Elijah was a man just like us. And so when I think about that particular passage, I think about the fact that here was a man, even though he was a great prophet of God, yet he was so discouraged. He was ready to give up on life. He was hiding in a cave. And God comes to him and says, why are you hiding in this cave? And he says, I'm the last one. I'm the only one left. Nobody else cares for you, God. Nobody else wants to do what's right anymore. The nation is full of idols. And I'm the only one left. God gives him a powerful demonstration of his power. But yet after this big demonstration of his power, he comes to Elijah and just a small little voice, a whisper. And he asks Elijah again, he says, why are you here? And again, Elijah proclaims that the nation of Israel has torn down the altars of God. They have slain the prophets of God. There's nobody left. I'm the only one left. And then God tells him these wonderful words in verse 18. He says, I have 7,000 followers who are standing tall. The text says they have not bowed their knee to Baal, but that means they're standing tall, they're standing for righteousness, they're standing for God, they're standing to be the kind of people that God wants them to be. But yet at the same time, when I read this story in the text and I think about Elijah and I think about his discouragement, I think about the fact that because we are like him, we too oftentimes get discouraged when we look at the situation of the world we live in today. In fact, I was thinking about this particular fact. 
As we think about these 7,000 standing tall, I think about the fact that consider the dark picture of a world given to idolatry. Elijah was so discouraged because it seemed like the whole world has turned to idolatry. And we too, oftentimes when we look at the world that we live in today, it seems like the whole world has gone crazy. It seems like the whole world has turned to idolatry. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't believe that there are people out there who are bowing down before idols now, but certainly the shape and the means of idolatry may have changed, but it's still idolatry. You would think because Israel was God's people, because Israel was living in the promised land given to them by God, that idolatry would not be the national policy, but the situation in Israel now, that was the case. The majority were idolatrous, were people worshiping Baal now, not worshiping God. And you would think, we living in what we call, quote-unquote, a Christian nation, that this nation would be more Christian, but we too are living in a world of idolatry. Like I said, the shapes of these idols have changed, but still, the majority of the world in which we live in today is an idol-worshiping country. And so we too can become very, very discouraged. We live in a land of false religion and false teachers. It's not a popular thing to say, And there may be some that even get upset with me today in attendance today by me saying this. But if you are practicing something that's called Christianity, but it's not being practiced in the way that God wants it to be practiced, you are simply following a false religion, which is idolatry. We live in a land today where greed is the number one reason that people do so many things that they do. It's always about the money. It's always about getting more. But Paul reminds us in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5 that covetousness is idolatry. The number one religion in the world today, or I would say the number one idol-worshiping thing in the world today, is something we call humanism. Humanism is the idea of the fact That basically man is God. That self is the idol. And that seems to be the the main thing that seems to be driving people. Instead of worshiping God, they want to worship self. And they put very little value on what God has to say in His absolutes. Instead, it's all about my experience and what I want to happen and about my wishes. It doesn't matter what God says. Therefore, we live in a land today where we can kill babies and baby the killer because reason has gone out of the way when it comes to God's absolutes and man has placed himself in the place of God and has become his own idol. So we too, like Elijah, we can let our minds go back to that day when he was in that cave and he looked out at the landscape of Israel and he looked at the royalty of Israel. He looked at the priest of Israel. He looked at the religion of Israel. He looked at the countrymen of Israel. And he thought about how it was so full of idolatry that he felt like the only one. And I know too, oftentimes we can look at the world today. We can look at these United States. And we look at what people call religion. We look at what people call what is right when we look at the different things that people are doing today, we too can be discouraged like 
Elijah, and sometimes we may even feel that if I'm not the only one, I'm a part of the few of those who are still trying to do what God wants us to do. But then, as we look at the text, we are reminded of this. Elijah was comforted in knowing that there were still 7,000 who will stand tall for truth and righteousness. God came to Elijah in that cave and he told him, he says, you're not the only one. I know sometimes you feel like you're the only one, but you're not the only one. There's 7,000 people in this country. 7,000, Elijah, who have not bowed the knee to Baal, who have not kissed this idol. In other words, they're standing tall for me, Elijah. Don't you be discouraged. Now that number, 7,000, may have been a literal number or it may have been a symbolic number to show that there were those who were still doing what is right. But the lesson that I learned when he tells us this 7,000 is you need to understand that just because the majority are doing something doesn't mean that there is a minority who is doing what is right. When you think about it, 7,000 is really kind of a small number. Uh, When you think about there are those who estimate that during this time period that Elijah lived, that there may have been as many as 6 million Israelites living in the land of Israel. 7,000 is a very small number. But when you think about it, God's people have always been in the minority when it comes to doing what is right. Think about the story of Noah that we begin reading about in Genesis chapter 8. The whole world, the entire world was involved in wickedness and have left God. Only eight people were saved from the flood. You talk about a minority that was doing right, yet that minority was doing right. When it came time to enter the promised land, think about the almost 700,000 people that left the land of Egypt and how they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of their sins. And how that only two people out of that bunch, Joshua and Caleb, entered the promised land. When you think about how that when Jesus was on this earth and how that all the Pharisees there in the Sanhedrin turned against him, there was one man who was willing to speak up for him, a man by the name of Nicodemus. You see... Oftentimes when it comes to living in the world that we live in, oftentimes when it comes to doing what is right, sometimes we may be the only one. But since we are the only one, we're still the ones doing right. And even if we are the only one, we are reminded of the words of Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, where Paul simply says, if God be for us, who can be against us? So we need to understand that it's not the majority who decides things. It's the Lord that decides things. It's not the size of the church that decides things. It's the Lord who decides things. It's not what everybody else is doing that decides things. It's what the Lord decides that decides things. But then... I want you to think about this inspired commentary that we have on 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 18 
when we get to Romans chapter 11, verses 2 through 5. There Paul teaches that those who will stand up for God are a part of that 7,000 standing call known as God's righteous remnant. Look at this passage with me for a moment. Romans chapter 11, beginning at verse 2 from the English Standard Version. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scriptures say of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now, in the context of what's going on here, Paul is referring to those Jews that were living during his time period who had become Christians. Jews who, in spite of their nation, thinking that Jesus was a blasphemer, thinking that Jesus was a liar, thinking that Jesus deserved to die on the cross, there were some Jews who were still standing tall. There were some Jews who have not gone back to Judaism. They remained faithful as Christians. But also the application that he is making to us is that we too, in spite of what the numbers may be, in spite of what the majority may be doing, in spite of what the entire nation may do, even though we may oftentimes feel like we're the only one, if we will remain true to God and stand tall, then we're a part of that righteous remnant. We are a part of that modern day 7,000 standing tall because we have not bowed our knee to perhaps what the rest of the world has bowed their knee to. And so the obligation on our part, the command that we need to need to carry out now, as we look at 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 18, and we see Paul's inspired commentary on this, we need to challenge ourselves to stand tall no matter what. Therefore, we will not bow the knee to evolution, but we will stand tall for creation. Because we know Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We will not bow the knee to creeds and manuals that churches come up with where they try to lay down what their particular denomination holds as their beliefs. But we will stand tall for the word of God and the word of God only. Because 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 reminds us that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished, perfect unto every good work. In other words, everything we need is right here in this book, and we will stand tall for it. We will not bow our knee to some particular man-made doctrine or creed. We will not bow the knee to denominationalism, but we will stand tall for the Lord's church. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Jesus says, I will build my church, and that's the church that we want to be a part of, not something that was created by man or devised by man or brought about by man. Instead, we just simply want to be New Testament Christians 
and preach that old Jerusalem gospel that was preached 2,000 years ago. Therefore, we will not bow our knee to the sinner's prayer, but instead we will preach the unadulterated, pure gospel of Jesus Christ. When Ananias came to Saul, who was a believer, someone who had been praying for several days and fasting because he wanted to be saved, what did Ananias the preacher tell him in Acts 22 and verse 16? He said, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. No, we will not bow to anything that this world has to offer, but instead we were going to be a part of that 7,000 standing tall for God's way. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 13, he tells us to stand fast in the faith. In other words, be a part of that 7,000 standing tall, despite of what the rest of the world does. But then he also reminded us earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58, he says, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the law. In other words, continue being that 7,000 standing tall, God's righteous remnant, saved by his grace, but so thankful that we can be saved sinners. If you have a need this morning, we want to give you the opportunity to be saved. If you're not a Christian, we also want to give you the encouragement and prayers you may need to continue being a part of that righteous remnant, 7,000 standing tall, as together we stand and sing.